Amen. How we who are trusting Jesus have, uh, have found that last hymn to be so true. Things are growing dimmer and dimmer in this old world as we get closer to seeing Jesus. I bet the thief would have loved that hymn. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for the new one, too, man. That's good. good. Good singing, church. Good singing. What a joy to sing with you. It's also a joy to re- say our life verse together with you. So let's do that. Uh, our life verse this month is uh, Romans 6, verse 4. Uh, let's say this together. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And our sermon text, uh, more like a springboard text, not, not, we're not going to really exposit it so, so much per se, uh, but um, 2 Corinthians 5.17 uh, for those of you who were with us last Easter, I mean last Sunday on Easter Sunday, uh, thank you for returning to hear the rest of the message. And uh, for those of the, you that weren't here, I'll give you enough re- review so you'll be with us, okay? So you'll, you'll be right in step with us. Second um, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I'm going to start at verse 14, though. Second uh, Corinthians 5, verse 14. Listen as I read. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we are more concerned about their spiritual life. Their spirit is what will live forever in one place or Another. We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious truth of the new life that we receive when Jesus saves us. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Give us ears to hear this morning. Thank you for your precious word. May you speak to our hearts this morning. the place where life change takes place. Speak to us, Lord, in the depths of our soul. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart together here today be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Last Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday, we explored, uh, we began by exploring the theological truth of how the resurrection of Jesus is connected to 
the believer's new birth and resulting new life. We saw how the Bible teaches that the believer's old life has been crucified with Christ and that we have been raised with Jesus in a very real spiritual sense to walk in newness of life. We looked at Colossians 2, 11 to 14 and Romans 6, 1 through 11 to drive home uh, those truths. This is what the new birth is all about. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no new birth. Without the cross, without the empty tomb, there is no new life for anybody. And we're, we're of all people the most to be pitied. If we are banking all that we are on this historical truth of a Jewish carpenter being nailed to a cross on that first Good Friday and then being raised from the dead on the third day, if we're pinning all our hopes on that and that is not true, then we are pitiful people. We are pitiful people. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we're not pitiful people. We are joyful people. Uh, Even in the midst of of distress and despair and, and hardship and chaos, we, we are thankful people. We are people that are pressing on. We are persevering. We are people that are representing Jesus. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are people whose sins, every single one of them, in thought, word, and deed, have been forgiven. Our biggest problem has been taken care of, and hell is no longer an issue for us. So we're happy, joyful, thankful people, even in the midst of sad times. The underlying foundation of our life is gladness and joy and gratitude. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus and we march on for the glory of God by his grace. I was reading one a a little bit this morning uh, about, um, I forget the exact title because I just got it. I think it's uh, Have No Fear by John Lennox. And uh, in that, he made this statement, this sitting on your sermon sheet, this is one of those added quotes that I get after I print the sermon sheet, but uh, he said, there must be perceptible change in the way we conduct our lives. He's talking about believers. For a believer, for a person professing to be a Christian, there must be perceptible change in the way we conduct our lives. And as we began, as we saw, began to see last week, we, we saw that in the life of one of the thieves, right? He began mocking Jesus like everybody else, like his buddy in the, on the other cross next to Jesus. And, and, and all the people in the crowd, except for the, a handful there, Mary and John and uh, those that were there, you know, weeping and, and sorrowful. Uh, but most of the crowd mocking Jesus, the, both the thieves are right along with him. And then all of a sudden, something happens. And, and one of the thieves is no longer mocking Jesus. In fact, uh, he's defending Jesus. He's defending Jesus and asking Jesus to save him, basically. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's acknowledging the kingship of Jesus. So 
The statement by John Lennox in his little book is true for this thief, even though he only had a few more hours to live. In those few hours, there was perceptible change, noticeable change, obvious change, change that could be seen in the way we conduct our lives. So last week, after that brief, very brief study of the theological reasons for our new birth, the spiritual underpinnings, the spiritual background of why we can be born again, we then used this saved thief as an example of someone who had been raised spiritually to new life. We saw evidence of it in his change of heart toward Jesus. As we said, how he, how he went from mocking him like everyone else to defending him, how he recognized his perfection, his holiness, his sinlessness in saying, this man has done nothing wrong. And he recognized his kingship. And he wound up asking Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom, which Jesus immediately promised to do. He didn't say, well, let me think about it. Or let me weigh your, 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 the re, the, your earlier life with, with right now. Let me, let me put it on the scale and see what happens. No, right then, immediately, Jesus responded to his request, to his need. When he said, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, no soul sleep, no, no you know, asleep, and then, you know, some of this teaching that we get, this heretical teaching. No, today, right now, in, in a few hours, you're going to be with me in paradise. Then we began to consider what the saved thief might say to us if he were here. And inspiration for this message comes from this month's book of the month. Heaven, How I Got Here, the story of the thief on the cross uh, by Colin Smith. Excellent little book. You can read it in one setting, about 80 or 90 pages. Easy read, but very, very soul-fulfilling. Very, very, it feeds your soul. And for you know, any nitpickers that may be here today or out there on the Internet who, who say, well, I really don't like speculative sermons. You know, we, we, we don't know what the thief would say. Let, let me just make a comment to that real quick. Yeah, I'm speculating on what the thief, what the, the, the specific, this specific individual might say to us if he was here. Yes, that's speculation. But the statements that I'm going to make to you today are not speculation. So let's make sure we understand the difference, okay? Let's make sure we understand the difference. You, you understand what I'm saying? We really don't know what the thief would say. But we know what the Bible says. And a Christian usually, hopefully, will say what the Bible says, okay? So the only speculation is, would these be the exact words of the thief? But the words I'm sharing with you today come from here. You see the difference? So it's really not speculative. It's speculative that the thief might say it, but what I'm going to say to you is not speculative. Do you understand the difference? Okay? So... Don't be a nitpicker, okay? All right, here we go. Now, last Sunday, we got, we got started with three statements. And I'm going to give you 10. 
And I'm not going to elaborate on any of them very long, so don't panic. Oh, no, 10 points. God. Okay, no. We, we started with three. Let me review them real quick. The thief might say, number one, there's a big difference between believing in God and fearing God. Because remember what he said to the other thief. Luke 23, 39 and 40, one of the criminals who were hanging there railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation. So there we have it, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. Because in, in, even in America, especially in America, most if you ask them, do you believe in God? Most everybody says, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. But guess what? For most of them, it's a God of their own making. It's a God with all the hard edges softened. It's a God with no wrath. It's a God who's not sovereign, a God who's not in control, a God who sends no one to hell, a God who gladly allows people to live in ways that totally, absolutely contradict the laws, commandments, and precepts that, precepts that he has given to mankind. It's what I call the Santa Claus God. It's a good buddy God. It's a therapist God, a God who's there when we need him, but we call the shots on that. He's not a God that intervenes or interferes in our life in any way. He's over there in the corner, kind of like a counselor that we call, oh, I need you now. Can you help me with this? But we still run our lives. No, no, no. That, that's, not, that's not the God of the Bible. In fact, how does... How does Romans 10 make it clear how we're saved? Romans 10, if we confess Jesus as good buddy, Santa Claus, therapist, no, we confess him as Lord, we'll be saved. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in his words of rebuke to, his, to the still unsaved thief, we see the beginning of wisdom in the saved thief. And that wisdom would lead him to asking the only person who could save him, who had the ability and power to save him, to save him. And he did. Secondly, we saw last week, the thief might say to us, a God who forgives inspires hope. A God who forgives inspires hope. Remember, as he was dying, one of the first, there's seven statements of Jesus from the cross. We've looked at them several times in our history, especially on Good Friday. Uh, one of the things that Jesus said as he was dying was, as you all know, Father, forgive them, for they know what not what they do. And the thief actually heard that. The thief was there. He was an eyewitness. He was an ear witness to that. He heard that. He actually heard Jesus speak those words, and something happened. It moved him. It, it gave him hope. He, he was possibly thinking if God could forgive these people who were mocking him, if God could forgive these, these phony religious spiritual leaders, if God could forgive these soldiers who had just hammered nails into his wrists and, and, and feet, if, if God could forgive those people, maybe, just maybe, he would forgive me. Maybe you're thinking that this morning. But let me tell you, he, he will. He will. No matter what. No matter what you've done, no matter what your history is, he will. 
And Jesus did. And this transaction of forgiveness began with the thief fearing God and recognizing his sinful condition. Remember what he said to the other guy? We're we're getting what we deserve. I'm getting what I deserve. And listen, his confession of that, that he was getting what he deserved in his earthly life, was the beginning of him not getting what he deserved in his afterlife. Isn't that wonderful? He's not in hell. He's not in hell. Amen. Third, we saw last week, he might say to us, don't wait to trust Jesus. That's how we closed last week. Don't wait. And you may say, well, that doesn't really fit, Butch. That doesn't really fit because... This guy's lived his whole life and he waited to the last minute to ask Jesus to save him. You know what? I think I'm going to learn from that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to live my life any way I want to. I'm going to be the boss of my life. And then, boy, when I know I'm about to die, I'll, I'll get saved. I, last week I had two responses. I'm going to repeat them again. Number one, you, do you really want to risk that? You live your whole life rejecting Jesus. My bet is your heart's going to be too hard to do anything because that's what happened to Pharaoh. God's going to harden your heart and it's going to be over for you. But secondly, really I'm adding another one. I'm I'm doing three today. What if you die suddenly? What if you're driving along in your car looking at your phone texting and you don't see the Mack truck coming and there there it is, lights out? (laughs) That could happen. To make sure it doesn't happen, don't text and drive. Don't look at your phone while you're driving, okay? Okay, please, please, young people, please don't do that, okay? But you could die suddenly, and you've, you've had this plan all your life. I'm going to live any way I want, and at the last minute, I'm going to ask Jesus to save me so I get to go to heaven, just like the thief. What a great example. But you, you might not die like the thief. You might not die slow, painful, agonizing death. You might die quick, lights out, all of a sudden death. So you want to risk that. And thirdly, have you ever considered that this might have been the thief's first encounter with Jesus? It's very possible that he didn't wait to the last minute. He trusted Jesus at his first opportunity. It could be that he asked Jesus to save him the first time Jesus was near. And listen, there are some of you today, you've had numerous opportunities to trust Jesus. In fact, every time you come here on Sunday, you've had an opportunity to trust Jesus. I'm sure you've had opportunities at home because a lot of you have been, you've grown up in a Christian home with a loving Christian mom and dad. Jesus has always been near to you. And for some reason, you continue to say no. And guess what? He's near to you right now. As the old, pray, old praise course said, he's, he's nearer to us than our hands and feet and closer to us than our breath. So what are you waiting for? What, what are you waiting for? I urge you with every fiber of my being, with every ounce of my over 200 pounds, I won't get specific with you, but look to Jesus as the dying thief did. Trust him now. Trust him now. Trust him to save you. Trust him to forgive you. Trust him to bring you into his kingdom. Trust him to give you new life. 
today, right now. Don't wait another minute. You can pray it right now in your heart. You don't have to wait till the sermon's over. Don't wait because, because you're not guaranteed another minute. Your heart could stop in the next minute. Now, today is the day of salvation. Okay, let's continue with the thief's probable. I'm saying probable. Not possible. I'm, I'm, I'm upping it a little bit. Probable testimony. Okay? His speculative testimony based on non-speculative truths that we know from the Word of God. Number four. He might say, and I think he would say, you can count on the words of Jesus. You can count on the words of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to the priest, I mean to the thief. Priest, where did I get that? Thief, after he asked the Lord to remember him. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. And guess what? He was. He was. Jesus was true to his word. And he always is. He always is, beloved. Jesus keeps his promises. Speaking of promises, I'm, I'm really enjoying my, my Spotify app. I, I know I'm like 20 years behind the times, but the other day I was walking, and this oldie but goodie popped up on the Keith Green channel. Uh, it's Oldie goodie, But Goody by Rich Mullins while I was walking. And here's the course, and you can join along with me if you recognize it. If I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me, new birth, born in me, these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. Beloved, the saved thief is home. All because of the grace and promise of Jesus. Jesus said he would be with him when he died, and he is Right now, and one day, one day, every single one of us who are trusting Jesus will be home also. There will be no more longing for our home. And I don't know about you, but some of you, my peers, some of you older folks, is, is the longing getting stronger the older you get? Amen. Say amen if that's true for you. Listen, I'm longing. It's not a death wish. I want to stay here with my precious grandchildren as long as the Lord allows me. But my death day is not going to be a sad day. Not going to be a sad day. Now, I hope it's sad for my grandchildren, but it's not going to be sad for me, okay? I hope they will miss me. But one day, one day, the longing is going to be over for the exact same reason, the grace and promise of Jesus. We can count on these words of our Lord and Savior. Remember John 14, let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, would I have lied to you? Would I have lied? If that were, would I have lied to you? Compare Jesus to some of our government leaders. Oh, another message for another day. Okay, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will, I will, I will come again and I will take you. I will, not maybe, not think about it. I will take you to myself. 
Just like he did the thief. That where I am, you may be also. Where he is, we will be. Beloved, you can count on it. Put it in the bank. It's done. It's done. Just like Paul in Romans 8 said, we're, we're glorified. What do you mean, Paul? Glor- past him, we're not glorified, yet, but you're good as glorified. You will be. And it's so sure I wrote it in the past tense. You will be. You're, you're glorified. Because it's done. Jesus did it. Number five. The thief might say to us, probably would say to us, entrance into heaven does not depend on your performance in the Christian life. Now listen carefully. Listen close. This is a biggie. They're all biggies, but this is biggie for some, for some of you. Entrance into heaven does not depend on your performance in the Christian life. The, listen, think about it. Have you ever thought about it? The thief had no time to live the Christian life. He had no time to live the victorious Christian life. He had no time to live the Christian life. He had, well, three hours maybe. Few hours to live the Christian life. His Christian life amounted to less than an eighth of a day, basically. He he didn't join a church. He was not baptized. Now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. That doesn't mean a saved person is not to do those things if they're still living. Okay? You have it, listen, guys. If you're a Christian and not been baptized, you have an excuse for not being baptized, okay? If you're nailed to a cross, you don't have to be baptized, okay? You got it? If you're nailed to a cross, you don't have to join a church, okay? Just so that there's your excuse right there for not being baptized if you're a Christian. But all it means, again, doesn't mean you don't do those things if you're still living, It just means that those things don't get you into heaven. They don't get you into heaven. Not by works. No one can boast, the Bible tells us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 89, classic text. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this faith is not your own doing. It's a gift. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one, no one, not a single person may boast. Now, why is this such good news? Why is this the gospel? Why is this such glorious good news? Because if our performance was what got us into heaven, not a single one of us would make it. I don't care how good you think you are. You're not good enough, and you'll never be good enough. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can live the Christian life well enough to deserve heaven. We all miss the mark. We've all fallen short of the standard of perfection that is required. And we will all continue to fall short. Okay? No matter how 
much we grow or how sanctified we get. Our, our sanctification curve is, is on a steady uprise like we've talked about before. A few years ago, we did a, like an eight or 12-week series on sanctification. And, 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 and our, our line is always going up, but we'll never get perfection. Only one person has done that. And that was Jesus for 33 years, total perfection. So that perfection could be counted to you. Imputed to you. Counted in your record when you stand before God. And you will. So hallelujah. Entrance into heaven does not depend on our performance in the Christian life. The only works that save us are the works of of Jesus. Speaking for the saved thief, Colin Smith wrote this. Here's what I discovered. Heaven does not depend on what you do for Christ, but on what he has done for you. Hallelujah. In Christ alone, my hope is found. All other ground is sinking sand. Okay. Number six, Jesus loves us because he loves us. I think the thief would tell us that. Jesus loves us because, not because we're pretty, not because we're handsome, not because we're smart, not because we're really theological. No, he loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us. In all his life up to this point, the thief had done zippo to earn, to earn Jesus' love. He had done nothing. You might say, well, in the last minute, he was defending Jesus. Maybe that earned Christ's love. Well, my answer to that was he didn't start that way. He was mocking right along with everyone else. He was going with the crowd. And then something happened. Something happened in the invisible realm. Something happened. Drastic. Deep. Vital to cause this man to defend Jesus. Just like something drastic, deep, and vital has got to happen to you to cause you to trust Jesus if you haven't trusted him yet. God has to move first. And I believe it was this for the thief. The love of Christ melted his stony heart. The love of Jesus melted his stony heart. Jesus loved him from the foundation of the world just like he loved you from the foundation of the world, dear believer. Here's how Moses describes it in Deuteronomy 7. Pick it up at verse 6. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were one of the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Now let's remove that middle connecting phrase there and read it again. It was not because you were more in number than, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. But it's because the Lord loves you. (laughs) 
God loves you because he loves you. That's the only reason. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you figured it out. Not because you joined the church. It's not because you were baptized. Not because you're Mr. Theology. No, it's because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. He chose you because he loves you. Isn't that amazing? If he were here, I think the sage thief would say a loud amen to Deuteronomy 7. Number seven, speaking of seven, number seven. I think the thief might tell us, probably would tell us, the mother of Jesus needed Jesus as a Savior just as much as he did. The mother of Jesus needed Jesus as a Savior just as much as he did. Now, isn't this neat? The saved thief, he wasn't dead yet, so he got to witness witness Jesus' last interaction with his mother as he charges John to take care of her. In that interaction, what did Jesus call his mother? Hey, mommy, John's going to take care of you. No. He called her woman. Now, was he being disrespectful? No, I think he was sending us a message. The, the reason he didn't say mother is because he wanted us to understand something. And it was possibly this. Jesus wanted to remind us and everybody that could hear that Mary gets no brownie points or heaven points by being the human mother of the Messiah. In the race to heaven, Mary doesn't get a head start because she's the mother of Jesus. She needed a Savior Because she was a woman, born of Adam. She inherited Adam's sin because she was fully human. She wasn't born of an immaculate conception, as is falsely taught in some branches of Catholicism. She's not an intermediary, an intermediary between us and God. We don't go to Mary. You know. They, they, they take the, the, the wine, the water to wine miracle and, and, and form a whole doctrine out of that. So they went to Mary and got Mary to, do, to get Jesus to do something. No, we, we don't go to Mary. We don't pray to Mary. Mary wasn't perfect. She was a woman. Just like all you women. She gets no points for being the mother of Jesus. Remember what Mary said when the angel told her she was going to give birth to the Messiah? My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Think about it. Think about it. Now just just ponder together. Corporate pondering. These two people, the thief, the saved thief, the one who got saved, and Mary, the mother of Jesus... 
These two people are in this historical scene. Historical scene. This really happened. This historical scene possibly to cause us to think about this. Mary and the thief are on the opposite ends of the morality scale. Mary sits at the upper end of goodness. The thief lies in the pits of the lower end of badness. The thief had lived a godless, vile, thieving life for his entire life up to his last few hours. Mary, as far as we know, had lived a pious, obedient, honorable life her entire life. But both of them entered heaven in exactly the same way. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Again, Colin Smith, speaking for the thief, said, quote, Mary entered heaven not because Jesus was hers by birth, but because she was his by faith. Got it? Mary entered heaven, not because Jesus was hers by birth, but because she was his by faith. Mary's greatest joy lay not in the life she gave to Jesus, but in the life she received from him. She gave him life in the flesh, For a time, he gave her life in the Spirit forever. So, the mother of Jesus needed a Savior just as much as the thief did. Bottom line, everybody gets to heaven the same way. The narrow way. The way is narrow that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Number eight, the thief might tell us this. Trusting Jesus doesn't guarantee a pain-free life. Trusting Jesus doesn't guarantee a pain-free life. Man, how, do we, how, much, how, how, how much has that been emphasized this past year? When Jesus saved the thief, the the thief still had to endure the pain of crucifixion. He wasn't magically lifted off of the cross. The thief would scoff, I believe, at the health and wealth prosperity gospel. He would just laugh his head off at that, as would many people in China, Uh, oh, tempted to go political, but won't. Okay, Um, as many people in third world countries where Christianity is illegal, uh, they would laugh. They would just, they would roll in the aisles laughing at the tenets of the so-called prosperity gospel. They would mock people like Osteen and people like They would just laugh. The thief would just have a field day of jokes with that. 
Because trusting Jesus doesn't guarantee a pain-free life. When we trust the Lord, things will come in our life to test us. God is perfecting us. Read James 1, verse 2. Smith said this, When suffering comes into your life, you may find yourself doubting God's love. Listen now. Don't leave me. But don't measure God's love by what is happening to you. Measure it by what happened to Jesus. Isn't that an amazing statement? Isn't that a beautiful statement? He goes on. Faith faith does not rest on your ability to feel God's love. So many want to do that. They They want to feel God's love. Sometimes he may allow that to happen, but that's not the key. Faith does not rest on your ability to feel God's love. It rests on his ability to keep his promise. Great book. You've got to read it. You can read it in one setting. You can read it this afternoon if you had immediate delivery. But anyway, and what happened to you? What did happen to Jesus? You know, Smith told us, don't, don't. Measure God's love by what's happening to you in this sin-cursed, fallen world. Measure God's love by what happened to Jesus. And what happened to Jesus? We've talked about that. We've focused in on it Friday night at Good Friday. When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was happening? God was forsaking him. God had turned his face away. The eternal fellowship was broken. He was separated from God. What is that? What is that the very definition of? Hell. Hell. Separation from God is hell. Jesus was experiencing hell so we wouldn't have to. That's how you measure God's love. Not by what's happening to you, but by what happened to Jesus. That's how we measure God's love. And, and the Apostle John, who was standing at the foot of the cross, said that. He wrote that. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Okay, here's an important statement. Most all the statements in the Bible are pretty important, but here's one, because he's fixing to tell us what love is. In this is love. And guess what? He's not going to say what's happening to you. (laughs) He's not going to say that. He says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen. Amen. Let's remember what propitiation is. Went to Grudem's systematic theology, got his little brief pithy definition. Propitiation, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, to the ultimate, drains the dregs of the cup of wrath. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. In this is love, not what's happening to you right now, 
But what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago? God sent him to be the wrath remover, to change the wrath that we deserved into favor, heaven, and not hell. That's love, beloved. That's love. So no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how difficult or painful it may be, you never have to worry about experiencing the eternal agony or torment of hell. The thief would probably tell us that, yes, he went through the indescribably painful event of crucifixion, that that was not removed from him when he trusted Jesus. His faith in Jesus did not spare him from that. But he would not be complaining because he didn't get what he really deserved. He did not have to experience the agonies of hell because Jesus had endured that for him in his place. So he wouldn't have to. In this is love, beloved. That's love, because the same is true for you if you've been born again. If you've been born again. Number nine, if the thief were here, he, he would probably tell us this. Jesus was not a victim, but a victor. Jesus was not a victim, but a victor. Now, we know this because of the resurrection. That was the ultimate final exclamation point of Easter weekend. The resurrection proved that Jesus was victorious over death, not only for himself, but for us. Okay? God had accepted his payment for our sin, and he was victorious. But we also get a huge hint of it in Jesus' last words, which the Bible tells us, were spoken in a loud voice, a loud voice, a very loud voice. Question, how often does someone, and I know it's not a common, you know, it's not a common habit for us to be around people in their last moments, okay? So it's maybe a hard question to answer. I've been around a couple of people at their moment of death, and I've never heard them talk in a loud voice. How often does someone speak their last words in a loud voice? Probably hardly at all, except for Jesus. Jesus loudly and victoriously exclaimed, it is finished. It is finished. The sacrifice has been made. The offering is complete. And salvation for God's people has been accomplished finished. The work God gave him to do, finished. Our salvation, finished, complete. He met every demand, fulfilled every law, fulfilled every commandment, finished. Hallelujah. And the thief was there. He actually heard Jesus speak those words. I can't wait to talk to the guy and get him to describe it a little bit more for me. Well, really, about how loud was it? I mean, oh, tell me about it. Again, speaking for the thief, Smith writes, I now know why his voice was so strong at the moment of his death. 
Jesus did not slide into death a victim. He marched into death as a conquering warrior. Hallelujah. Got to get the book. You got it because there's so much more great jewels like that in that little 80 or 90 page book. You got to get it. And, 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 and we, Jesus is a victor. He's the conqueror of death. And we, the Bible tells us, are more than conquerors in him. We benefit from Christ's victory. Number 10, last one. Can't say much about this one. I think the thief would probably tell us that heaven is a place of greater joy than you can ever imagine. Heaven is a place of greater joy than you could ever imagine. So since I can't come close, even close, to describing the immense untold joys of heaven, I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it at that let you ponder that. The thief, I'm pretty sure, would tell us, you think you got great thoughts about heaven? You're not even close. You're not even close. Heaven is a place of greater joy than you can ever imagine. Now, in closing, I just want to tell you about another little book, a little book I read. This look, you could call this a, a, a Lenten book, maybe a book for Lent. It's 40 days, 40 days of readings uh, leading up to Easter, starting on Ash Wednesday leading up to Easter. And it's by Tim Chester, and he, he introduces each day with his words, but then he quotes somebody from the past. I mean, way past. I mean, the, 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 the section I'm going to read you is from... The, the, today is from Gregory of Nyssa, third and fourth century. Okay, so these are old. These are old folks. These are way, way back there. And so, uh, I want to end today with the very last reading of the book. The reading, the day of of Easter is for on Easter Sunday. And uh, as I said, it's by Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, but it's, I'm reading it because it's something I believe the thief might be saying, okay? So let's close. Let me show this with you. For truly you, O Lord, are the pure and eternal fount of goodness. Once you justly turned away from us, and now in loving kindness, you've had mercy upon us. Once you hated, and now you are reconciled. Once you cursed, and now you bless. Once you banished us from paradise, and now you have recalled us. You have stripped off our unseemly fig leaf covering and put on us a costly garment. You have opened the prison and released the condemned. You have sprinkled us with clean water and cleansed us from our filthiness. No longer shall Adam be confounded when you call, nor hide himself convicted by his conscience, cowering in the thicket of paradise. Nor shall the flaming sword encircle paradise around and make the entrance inaccessible to those who draw near. For all is turned to joy for us who once were the heirs of sin. Paradise, yes, 
heaven itself may be trodden by humanity and all creation in the world and above the world that once was at variance with itself is knit together in friendship. Let me interject right here. I believe this is what creation is groaning for that Paul speaks of in Romans 8. Creation is groaning for this friendship. We human beings can join the angels' song, offering the worship of their praise to you. For all these things, then, let us sing to you that hymn of joy, as lips touched by the Spirit long ago loudly sang, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah 61 verse 10. Truly, the adorner of the bride is Christ who is and was and shall be blessed now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for what he has accomplished for us. I pray now, earnestly, for those who need to know the joy of the saved thief. Please, Father, rescue their hearts. Open their eyes and grant them new life. Life abundant. Life in you. United to you in your death and resurrection. Father, we bless your name for sending Jesus. And we rejoice now in this time of fellowship with him at the table. We ask your blessing on that. And we thank you again for your precious word. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.